We are going to finish up our series today on our emotions. It seems like it's been a long time. I think it was February when we started this, and I thought it might take five or six weeks. It's taken 13, maybe 14, I'm not sure. But, but um, uh, what I want to talk to you about today, though, is an emotion that is um, increasingly unfamiliar to us and one that has kind of really gotten away from us uh, in, in recent years. We often refer to this emotion as awe and wonder, awe and wonder, and yet the Bible passage that we're going to look at today is a little more specific. It actually calls it fear and trembling. Uh, those are maybe two slightly different ideas, but they, they come, at, they come at, um, at our emotions from the same angle. Uh, this, when I say fear and trembling, this is not the same kind of fear that we talked about maybe a couple months ago when we dealt with how to deal with our fear. That fear was more like anxiety, you know, things that we're afraid of in life. This is, this is the fear that is tied to reverence. This is the fear that is tied to a, a tremendous respect and admiration. And, and more than that, it is, it is a feeling where there is a, a, an overwhelming sense of maybe terror and dread sometimes, maybe it's comfort other times, but whatever it is, we are overwhelmed by something or someone to the point that it just takes our breath away and leaves us stunned and silent without answers, without explanation, without any words at all. It's a time when your mouth just hangs open in amazement. That's the emotion I want to talk about today. And as I said, this is an emotion that we seem to, to feel less and less often. And, well, actually, I should say, not all of us. Um, we adults and youth feel less and less often. Kids are way better at this than we are. Kids never lose their sense of wonder, oh, well, until they grow up, right? Um, but we, who are a little bit older, have some issues. And I think there are at least three reasons for that. The first one applies to us, really specifically as Christians, and it has to do with the way we approach God in worship. Uh, when it comes to, to feeling or expressing our emotions when worshiping God, now that's probably a whole different sermon, and it is, and I'll probably preach it someday, but there, there is certainly, today in the church, there is a lot of what we might call emotionalism out there. And, and the idea there is emotion for emotion's sake. Our goal is to have a so-called worship experience, and I hate that phrase, but we want to do it maybe to come away with a feeling, not necessarily to glorify and magnify God. And that does happen a lot, yes, but that doesn't cancel out the fact that, that in the church we're supposed to be worshiping God, and if we're worshiping God with all of our being, that certainly includes our emotions. And there is a very important place for our emotions in worshiping God, including the ones that we've talked about in this series already, things like joy and gratitude and, yes, even grief and lament and guilt that leads to repentance, all of these positive and negative, as we think of them negative, emotions can have a part in our worship. But certainly, given who it is that we claim to be worshiping, must there not be a place for reverence and amazement and what we might call holy fear when we think about who God is? And yet, how often do we feel that emotion in a worship service? Now, I have no problem with informal worship. I'm looking around the room right now. I don't think anybody has a suit and tie on, and I don't either. I don't think we all have to dress up real nice and wear ties and dresses and sing with an organ all the time. It's hard to sing with a tie on. I don't like it. 
But, but there's a difference between informal and casual. Informal is a style of dress. It might even be a style of, um, of music. Uh, but casual is an attitude. And casual is an attitude that says, hey, I can take this or leave it. I'm, I'm taking this in stride. I find this perhaps somewhat entertaining or diverting for me, but it doesn't really affect me all that much. Now, to worship God informally is just fine. To worship God casually borders on blasphemy. But I think we are flirting with that attitude sometimes in the church today. I think that's one of the reasons we're, we're losing our sense of shock and awe at who God is. Secondly, I think our lack of a holy reverence for God is encouraged by a loss of respect for our leaders, our human leaders, especially those that have some kind of authority over us. Think about it. Recent trends in our culture have encouraged us to mock and ridicule our leaders, right? Our political leaders especially, right? We, we often see them as laughingstocks. But think about some other leaders. Our policemen and policewomen are no longer treated with the same respect and deference that we used to have for them. Our teachers are regularly disrespected, and that's probably a nice way to say it. Even our parents no longer command the respect of their children, not all of them, in the same way that they used to. Now, you might respond like this. You might say, well, given the quality of some of our political leaders in particular, how are we supposed to treat them with honor and respect? Right Now, perhaps that's part of it, but how much of this is due to the failures of our leaders and how much of it is due to a spirit of rebellion and crassness and just cynicism that is increasingly characterizing our world? I don't think there's an easy answer to this, by the way, but, but one thing that we can do and, and we should do, I think, is recognize this, this trend and examine ourselves and see what it has done in our own hearts and minds to our concept of God and our ability to stand in awe of His power and His authority and His majesty. Because it can be really hard to worship God with all of our hearts if we've allowed our hearts to grow cold and cynical and we're really unable to admire or respect anybody anymore. How do you respect God? And then lastly, when we look for reasons that maybe we don't feel the same awe and reverence anymore, is I think our technological progress is inoculating us against awe and wonder. Although if you think about it carefully, it should be doing the exact opposite. The other day, I was working at my computer, and many of you have had this experience, um, just doing my thing, and all of a sudden iTunes wants to talk to me. I want to update. All right, fine. And I had some time, so I said, I'm going to let, I usually say no, I said, I'm going to let iTunes go ahead and update itself. And I'm watching, the, you know, the download happen, and I'm watching the numbers go by, and I'm, I'm thinking back to the very first computer that Dawn and I ever purchased for home use back in about 1990, and how it had a whole 20 megabytes of storage on the hard drive. And we thought, how are we ever going to fill up all that drive space? I mean, we're going to have this computer forever. 20 megabytes. That's a lot. And now I'm watching iTunes update, I'm watching the download happen, and I'm watching that amount of data get transferred into my computer every couple of seconds from hundreds of miles away. And most people would look at that today and they'd say, wow, aren't human beings awesome? And I think, yeah, we kind of are. That's pretty amazing that, that we could do that. But listen, who made us that way? And who gave us the ability to discover and use electricity? And who even put electricity in creation, for that matter? 
who graciously gave us the whole electromagnetic spectrum and the physical media like air and conducting metals and silica to transport all of this data? Who first conceived of and provided for the semiconductor materials that we use to store and process all this information? You know what? The more we know, the more we discover, the more we can do, the more we should be amazed at the genius of our Creator. Don't you think? When Abraham was challenged by God to count the stars, you know, he's looking up at the night sky, and I'm sure it looked pretty glorious. There were no electric lights up there to interfere at that time. When Isaiah declared in, in a chapter that, that we read part of actually in the worship service this morning that God put all of those stars in place and calls them each by name. Think about that for a second. Abraham and Isaiah were absolutely amazed. And in Isaiah, it asks the right question. Instead of saying, wow, aren't people awesome because we have the ability to look at the stars? No, instead it cries out, who created all these? Who did this? But of course, Abraham and Isaiah didn't know the half of it, did they? They didn't know, as we do today, that there are about 100 billion stars just in the Milky Way galaxy. And there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 billion galaxies in the known universe, give or take. How many letters must God have in his alphabet just to spell out all the names that he has to give to all these stars? Isn't that amazing? But think in the other direction, because it's more amazing to think about that. Not, don't think galactic, think microscopic, because the numbers are even more crazy. When David wrote Psalm 139, and he talked about being fearfully and wonderfully made and how God lovingly designed all the parts of his body to fit together just right. He said at that time, he said, God, your knowledge is too wonderful for me. Your thoughts to me are so vast, I can't comprehend them. They're, they're so wonderful, I can't even conceive of them. And David didn't know the half of it. He didn't know that his body contained about 100 trillion cells of different types and functions. Or for that matter, that those cells contained about one hundred trillion atoms each. So now we're into the octillions, which I don't even know what that means. It just defies comprehension. But it's not just the scope of God's creation that should have us falling down in worship and crying out in amazement. It's also his incredible creativity. Um, one of my favorite writers is a guy named Andrew Wilson, and he put out a devotional book recently that's called The God of All Things. And in that book, he, he looks at common objects and experiences from everyday life and how God uses these things as symbols throughout his word to tell us things about himself. And in one chapter, he talks about honey and, and how the Bible often uses honey's enduring sweetness and purity as a metaphor for you know, the best things in life um, and some other things as well. But then, then at one point, on one page of the book, he actually gets into the process by which honey is made. Now, some of you know a little bit about this, but just humor me while I read this from his book. Bees rummage around inside flowers to find nectar, sometimes collecting honeydew as well, and digest it as they fly. On returning, the foragers perform a dance, which explains to the others where they have found the nectar, a dance which unthinkably factors in the position of the sun relative to the food source, the distance they have flown, the quality of the food available, and even the speed of the wind, and they pass the nectar along to their colleagues in the hive who pass it around from bee to bee until it is digested enough to be stored. This takes about 20 minutes. 
When it is ready, they put it in the cells of the honeycomb and gradually raise its sugar content by evaporating the water using the heat of their bodies and continually flapping their wings to keep the air circulating. When the sugar level is high enough to ensure the honey won't ferment, they seal the cell with wax and move on to the next one. Then he says this, As far as I know, nobody has ever published an academic paper proving the existence of God from the existence of bees, but somebody probably should. No kidding. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea, creation's revealing your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring, every creature unique in the song that it sings. Indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you know them by name. You are amazing, God. Does the glory of God as it shows up in his creation, ever cause you to just stand still before him in stunned silence? Or maybe just to laugh out loud for joy and utter astonishment because of God's completely ridiculous level of creativity, like with the bees. Do you ever stop and even contemplate life long enough to let yourself feel such emotions, or are you always on to the next job or the next you know, plaything or the next activity or, or whatever you need to do to take up time so that you never really stop and think about who it is that created you, where it is he's placed you, and, and what the, the, the world around you says about God. And yet creation, creation for all of its awe-inducing scale and complexity is not even the most amazing thing about our God. When you get to the book of Revelation, there, there's a lot of worship that happens in Revelation. There's worship scenes happening in heaven in several different chapters. And there's millions of saints and angels, and they're gathered around the throne of God, and they're worshiping. And when they do that, they do sing some about the glory of creation, because creation is so awesome, right? But as the book progresses, and as the worship intensifies, what happens is their song transitions to something else that God has done. And that something has to do with Jesus with Jesus. So turn with me now to Philippians chapter 2, which is our, our passage for today. Philippians chapter 2. And when you get there, we're going to look at a couple of pretty famous verses in context, and they are verses 12 and 13. 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, but certainly by extension writing really directly to us here, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, uh, there are a lot of directions we can go with those verses, and we do. And some of those directions that we go with these verses lead to some pretty deep water. Uh, you can talk about how we don't work for our salvation, but we do work out our salvation in response to what God is doing and with the power that he gives us. That's an awesome lesson right there. You can talk about how God not only gives us the power, the ability to serve him, but he also gives us the will, the desire to serve him. And there's a great lesson in that too. And these observations are the source of endless ruminations and discussions and maybe even controversies in our Sunday school classes and in our Bible studies. But you know what? When you look at the original Greek here, 
what you find is that the part of the verse that Paul is really highlighting is this phrase, with fear and trembling. That's his main point. That's the main idea. Paul wants the church to be filled with awe and wonder, but even more than that, he wants us to be filled with a a, a sense of awesome gravity and seriousness with a kind of holy fear as we live out our lives in Christ. So, So where in Paul's thinking does that come from? Well, verse 12 starts out with a magic word, therefore. And when you see the magic word therefore, what do you ask? What's it? Therefore. And in this case, it therefore points us back to the preceding verses, which are even more famous and which were quite possibly an early Christian hymn, part of it at least. Have this mind among yourself, starting in verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think sometimes because Jesus is our friend and Jesus in a way is our brother and we have this friendship and this intimacy with Jesus, we often forget who he is. He's God. He's the eternal, invisible God. He's the everlasting God. He's the God of creation. Yes, he's a full-fledged human being, but he is also the eternal and unchanging God. John tells us that without Jesus, nothing was made that was made. In other words, Jesus did all of it. Everything you see in conjunction with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Uh, And and you might recall a story from the Gospels, uh, just to put this kind of in context. There's a story in the Gospels that you probably know pretty well. Um, I think it was Pastor Ben's favorite passage to preach on when when, when he was here. He he loved this passage. I do too. It's when Jesus is in the boat with his disciples, and there's a storm, and and they get really freaked out because Jesus calms the storm. You know, know, he's asleep in the back of the boat. They're trying to not get killed, and they're like, we're going to die. This storm is so horrible. And they wake him up, and they say, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus looks out at the waves, and he says, peace be still. And, And the wind stops, and it's like a dead calm, and the sea dies down. And the disciples are filled with fear and trembling. They're even more frightened now than they were by the storm. And they look at each other and they say, who is this guy? Who indeed? But you know what? They didn't know the half of it. I wonder if they had recently read Psalm 33 where it says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So, All those stars we were talking about, he just breathed them out. Then it says this, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. So the next time you wade out into the endless ocean or what seems like the endless ocean and it's swirling all around you and you're trying not to get pulled up by the undertow because it's so awesome and so vast, remember that God could put that whole thing in his pantry. To God... And let's remind ourselves, to Jesus, the Pacific Ocean is kind of like the baby pool we just bought to put on our porch that the grandson can play in. Which means that 
by analogy, the Sea of Galilee is a small puddle on the sidewalk. In other words, calming this storm, while it made the disciples even more terrified than when they were in the storm itself, calming that storm was child's play to Jesus. He didn't even have to raise his voice. Peace be still. Chill. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. Remember who he is. And then read Philippians 2, 5 through 8, and see what he's done. The God who created 2,000 billion billion stars willingly emptied himself of all of his divine glory and majesty and was squeezed into a few hundred trillion cells, taking on a weak and limited human body. And you'd think if God was going to become a human being, he'd become a pretty glorious human being, right? I mean, wow, what must he look like? No. His mission was not to be a glorious and triumphant human being. His mission was to become a despised human being, a rejected human being. In fact, he ended up being labeled a criminal and dying a criminal's death, hanging in helpless agony upon a cross fashioned from a tree that he once created. The whole thing just defies comprehension. Why did he do it? First of all, he did it because his father told him to do it. He obeyed. But secondly, he did it to save us from our sin. And because of this ultimate act of, of infinite sacrifice and perfect obedience, it says here in Philippians that Jesus gained even more glory. And the inhabitants of heaven will forever declare his glory around the throne as the Lamb of God who, quote, was slain and by his blood ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God and to reign upon the earth. Paul says this whole scenario should just blow our minds, even more than creation does. It should leave us speechless in awe and wonder, but more than that, it should lead to fear and trembling. Because, now look at verse 13, because verse 12 not only has a therefore at the beginning of it, looking backward, there's also a for at the end of it where verse 13 starts pointing forward. Why else should we have fear and trembling? For it is God who works in you. It is God who is working in you, believer in Jesus Christ. As amazing as it is that Jesus would become human and die for us, it is perhaps even more amazing that the Holy Spirit would consent to come and live inside of us self-centered and sinful human beings. I want you to think of it this way. There are several times in the Bible where when a person all of a sudden becomes aware that he's in the presence of God, and then each time there is fear and trembling, and that person is like completely undone. Think about Moses to the burning bush when the voice within the bush tells him, you're standing on holy ground, take off your sandals. Think about Isaiah when he, 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 he finds himself seeing God high and lifted up in his temple with even the holy angels flying around covering their eyes, and he realizes in this moment of panic that he doesn't belong there. What am I doing here? I'm ruined. Think Peter. 
having just seen Jesus orchestrate an impossible catch of fish, and then suddenly he becomes aware of just who it is who is standing across the boat from him. And all Peter can get out is, depart from me, Lord. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. That is the feeling that Paul says we should have not only when we realize what Jesus has done to save us, but also that this holy, majestic God is at work in us. In us. What Paul says to all of us in this passage as believers in Jesus is this. Your life is holy ground. Your life is holy ground. Every moment you live for Jesus, every action, every word, every thought, every decision, every conversation, every ho-hum day at work or at school, every errand you run, every day when you get up in the morning, every night when you go to bed, you inhabit that place where Isaiah and Moses and Peter found themselves in the presence of divine majesty. And so, I'm not saying that you should walk around 24-7 with your mouth hanging open, unable to do anything, because I don't think we can live like that. Okay? But, but, there should be times in your life when you simply stop and say, what am I even doing here? I of all people, how, how could God have ever been this gracious to me? And what does it mean that he's living inside me right now? Reflect. Think. Contemplate. Wonder. But first you probably have to stop and be quiet. But consider these things. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice. The Son of God given for me. My debt he pays, and my death he dies that I might live. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So before we go to the communion table this morning, let's pause for just a minute, and I want you to consider that we are right at this moment on holy ground as we prepare to celebrate the unthinkable sacrifice that is even more awe-inducing than all the wonders of creation. Let's just spend a minute. Be quiet in his presence, and then I'll lead us in an old hymn that, that you might, you probably know, but as we sing this verse, I want you to really let the lyrics sink in. But first, let's just have a minute in silence.